you've got your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. We're going to be reading the first seven verses this morning. James chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. Spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Let's pray. Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. So we pray by it this morning that you would comfort us, that you would teach us, that you would direct and guide us. Would your son be our teacher this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I recently started uh, swimming laps during my morning workout, going to the pool, uh, just trying something new in my exercise routine. And I've been trying to go every morning uh, before I go into work. Uh, and on Monday morning last week, it was a particularly early morning for me. I was doing some seminary stuff. So I decided, you know what? I'm going to go into the pool a little bit earlier than I usually do this morning. So I show up to the pool at a you know very early hour in the morning. And I'm thinking, you know what? Like, because when I usually go, there's not a whole lot of people there, and I'm a beginner, and I, you know, I just don't look very good in the water, so no one will have to see me, and if I go extra early, really no one will be there. Uh, how wrong I was, because when you go really early, that's when you see all the real swimmers. So I walk into the pool, and there is an Iron Man bag sitting at the end of one of the lanes, and all of the lanes are full, and I'm just sitting there watching this. And there, you know, I can swim one length of the pool and back pretty well. You know, 100 meters, that'll, they'll start to tucker me out. But these people, they just swim back and forth and flip turns and all. And I was just in awe watching them. They didn't stop. And I went home Monday morning, and I'm like, man, there is a gap. There's a gap between me as a swimmer and those people. And now I got to figure out how to become like them, where I can just swim back and forth for 30 minutes, an hour without stopping. And I feel like that feeling of that gap is oftentimes what I feel like when I read the book of James. See, the book of James is a blunt book. It's direct. And what's it, what it's doing is it's painting the picture of the perfect disciple, the perfect follower of Jesus. And when we read it, at least for me, I can feel this gap begin to emerge. See, every chapter as I read it, it feels like it's showing me who I'm not. And it, it can become a little bit overwhelming, right? Because how am I going to be who God has made me to be and who the Spirit is making me to be if every moment, at every turn, I feel like I fall short, right? It's overwhelming. It's discouraging. And so I think that's where James chapter 4 this morning takes a really helpful turn. Because in our text this morning, there is an implicit biblical command. And the command is this, don't fight or quarrel. 
And throughout James, we've seen these kind of commands before, right? Count it joy when you're tested. Be a hearer, or not, don't be just a hearer, but a doer of the word. Show your faith by your works. And we didn't talk about these, but there are a couple more. You know, tame your tongue. Don't show favoritism. And yet James 4 does something totally different. It takes this command, don't fight or quarrel, and it begins to open it up a little bit so that we can understand what's going on inside our hearts. See, James asks a deeper question. What causes this? And so the point of the passage is that James wants to teach us how to understand our hearts. He wants us to understand the process of how people change. Because if our hearts are in the wrong place, our actions are going to follow. So as we dig into this text this morning, I want us to ask that question. How do people change? How do we fill in that gap? I think using this case study that James gives us of fighting and quarreling, what we're going to see is that our outward actions are changed by inward renewal, which is transformed by God's grace. Outward actions are transformed by inward renewal, which is transformed by God's grace. And we're going to be using this analogy this morning, this analogy of a tree. Uh, It's an analogy that's used all throughout Scripture, Psalm 1, to describe the Christian life, and I think it's really pertinent here. So using this analogy of the tree, how does James 4 teach us how people change? And the first thing that he talks about is the fruit. Talks about the fruit, right? And in this passage, there is a problem. There are people who are Christians who are following Jesus, and they're fighting with each other. They're quarreling. And they could be fighting about a whole host of things. They could be fighting about something you know, theological, political, economic. Maybe the husband didn't go feed the camel, and now they're going really slow, and now they're fighting. However, James's answer to this whole problem is not just simply say, stop fighting or quarreling. See, James realizes that there's a whole lot more going on underneath the surface that actually has to be addressed before you can turn to the actual act of fighting and quarreling. I want you to think about it this way. I grew up uh, in Orlando, Florida, so we went to New Smyrna Beach every summer growing up. And New Smyrna Beach is the shark fight capital of the world. I don't know if you all knew that. But anyway, we would be out in the water, and my mom would see a fin swimming in the water. Now, it could be a dolphin or it could be something else. So she immediately ran out and she started calling us in saying, because she saw the fin, so she's calling us in to the shore to get out of the water. Now, why did she call us in? Was it because the fin was dangerous? Or what was underneath the fin that was dangerous? See, the reason the fin was important was it because it alerted my mom to the fact that there might be a shark that is actually dangerous and could actually kill underneath the water. And that's what James is actually pointing out here in this passage. He doesn't say simply, you know what, stop fighting and quarreling. He begins by asking the question, what causes this? Because it's as if the fighting and quarreling might actually be a fin, signaling that something more dangerous might be lurking under the water. Move ahead to verse two. James keeps going. He says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. He said, hey, these are the things you're actually doing. These are the things that other people see, but they're caused by something deeper. See, it gets past logic. 
and we're starting to deal with matters of the heart. See, something has gone wrong in the heart, and what it's doing is it's causing a chain reaction to the point where now you are outwardly fighting and quarreling. And it's this image of a tree, right? If you have a lemon tree in your backyard, and it's growing bad fruit, and it doesn't just do it one time, but it does it multiple times, my guess is that you're not just going to pick off the fruit and say, you know what, next time the tree will bear good fruit and we'll be good. No, if this happens repeatedly, if it's a recurring problem, what are you going to do? You're going to start looking at the tree. See, there's probably something wrong with the tree if it's producing bad fruit over and over and over again. I think that image is so important to what James says here because throughout his book, indeed, all of the wisdom literature really hits on this point. You can't stay at the surface level when you talk about change. You can't stay at the surface level when you talk about change. You see, we can't simply say, you know what? I hear what I'm supposed to do, and I'm going to do better next time. You could go read James, and some people have and said, okay, here's the list of all the things that I don't do and what I have to do, and next time I'm just going to remember, okay, I need to do these things better. See, the problem is, though, when you read James like that, the cycle just perpetuates, doesn't it? The next time you fall short, you become discouraged, and you start asking, you know what? I'm not getting any better. Where's the growth? Where's the change? See, this is a cycle, and we all fall into it, of doing what's called fruit management. We look at the fruit, we look at the things where it's like, you know what? This isn't what God's called me to do. These aren't the outward actions he calls me to do. So you know what? I'm going to pick off the fruit, the bad fruit, and I'm going to do better next time. Maybe it's angry outbursts. Maybe it's not telling the whole truth. Maybe it's continually having poor relationships with your family or colleagues at work. We look at it and say, you know what? I'm going to do better. I'm going to pick off the fruit. I'm going to do better next time. And then the bad fruit rears its ugly head again. What happens? We become tired, become exasperated, become frustrated. Maybe some of y'all have asked that question. You know what? Am I really worth it to God if I keep messing up? Does he really love me? See, the discouragement of not growing, but when we do this fruit management. So James invites us to reflect when we see the fruit of our lives, who we are actually showing ourselves out to be in the world, what other people see about us. That fruit can signal something going on below the surface, something going on with our heart. So if we want to change, it isn't simply by recognizing and fixing the problem on our own. Rather, God's going to draw us deeper. So it's not the fruit. We need to look where? We need to look at the root. So we see the fruit, and right away you see it, verse 1, verse 3. What is the cause of the fruit of fighting and quarreling? What is the cause of it? It's the passions that are at a war within you. And why is that bad? Well, the answer comes at the end of verse 3 and 4. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. Why? To spend it on your passions. You, adulterous people. And that phrase, you, adulterous people, that is an extremely loaded phrase, but it orients everything that James is trying to talk about here. See, throughout Scripture, whenever we see that phrase, you adulterous people, oftentimes what we are talking about is the issue of idolatry. Idolatry. 
See, James says the core root of the problem is not that they're fighting and they just choose not to stop. The core root of the problem is that they're actually idolaters. Something has taken the place of God in their life. And because their hearts worship something else, they are now stuck in a rut of fighting and quarreling. And I want you to follow this line of reasoning here. And James writes this, the people want something, so what do they do? They act sinfully to get it. They refuse to ask God for what they want because they think they might be able to obtain it on their own. And if they do ask God for it, they ask wrongly. And why do they ask wrongly? Because their whole motivation for asking is wrong. I think you, all of y'all know this well if you have kids, right? It's when they want something from you that all of a sudden they are the most obedient children on earth. And you're happy because, you know, they're obeying, you know, what you've told them. But do you want them obeying because you're a means to an end? Or do you want them obeying because they truly love you? See, motivation matters. Motivation matters. And sometimes I think when we sit in this room, you know, in 2022, we belittle the problem of idolatry. I don't think we take it as seriously enough as we should. And we kind of write off idolatry saying, you know what? We're in church every Sunday. And last I checked, you know, like they say my finances might be an idol, but my finances don't have a church building and a 10 o'clock worship service. See, I might be guilty of loving things too much sometimes, but it isn't the idolatry that's talked about in the Bible. Those people, they literally had poles and they carried around the poles and they would put them down and they would bow down to the poles. I'm not like that. And yet scripture's fundamental point is that we actually are like that. We are all idolaters. Me, you, all of us. John Calvin goes so far to say that we are idol-making factories. See, we all at time and time again, what do we do? We place things at the center of our lives from which we find purpose and value. See, these idols, these are the things that we believe can give us what we most want, most desire, most crave in life. Tim Keller, he's a pastor in New York City. He notes that there are many different types of idols, but all of them flow from motivations of the heart. For example, if you long for approval, if you crave approval, and you believe that your friend group might be able to give you the approval that God couldn't, it can become an idol. If you want security, if you crave security, and you believe that your finances might be able to give that for you better than God could, it becomes an idol. If you envy success, and you believe that your job is the pathway to everyone realizing how successful you are, it can become an idol. You see, idols are immensely practical because they serve to try and give the heart what it most craves. One of the most famous idols in all of scripture is Baal. Baal was a rain god. And Israel's economy was an agricultural economy. So what did they want? They wanted rain because it would give, you know, a good harvest. So they idolized Baal. They worshiped Baal. Not because, you know, they were clueless people following a false god, but because it was a, excuse me, it was an immensely practical god. 
So what does James mean to point out here? Is it really about the fighting and the quarreling? No, not really. End of verse 4. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You see, the outward fruit of fighting and quarreling is because the heart truly believes it can obtain what it craves from the world. Why do you get on social media and comment on a political opinion or post? Is it because you are legitimately right? Or because maybe you want approval or power and it just scratches that itch a little bit? Why do you and your spouse go around arguing again and again and again? Is it because your spouse is dead wrong? Or maybe because it might just be a desire for control? Why is it that you're extremely wishy-washy when it comes to commitments? Is it because you're truly busy? Or because maybe you desire comfort and laziness? See, our idols will often form the shape of our outward actions. And so when we see the fruit, it's a signal that our heart is craving what it wants in the wrong place. So now, knowing that, how do we move forward? How do we change our hearts to bear good fruit. And so James then turns to the solution. So fruit and the root. And so what is the fertilizer? What creates fertile soil for a good tree to grow? And James notes three ways that our hearts are reshaped and molded. What fertilizes growth and good fruit? And first, it's verse five, it's the spirit. It's the spirit. It's the spirit which God has jealously made to dwell in us. That's the starting place. See, when our hearts are misaligned, when we're prone to make idols that meet our needs, the first thing that wakes us up from our sleep is the power of the Holy Spirit to revive our hearts again. See, Christianity has long been understood as this religion of do's and don'ts. Follow this rule, be this way, and God will be happy with you. However, the core of our theology is that we're what we call totally depraved. Totally depraved. And that's to say that we are tainted by sin. Now, we're not as bad as we could be by God's grace, but every single one of us fully, thoughts, minds, emotions, actions, we are tainted by sin. And that is why scripture is so keen on being born again and a new creation. You see, there's an element to change when we talk about change that we can't contribute at all. It actually has to be done to us. You see, God has to work his spirit and bring life into us. So the starting point of James, ironically, is that you can't cover the gap on your own. There has to be someone who enables you to do it. And that someone is the Holy Spirit. You see, we can only begin to grow and change if we rely on the spirit. Do you think you have the power to cover the gap on your own? You don't. And that leads us to the second way. It's grace. See, God has blessed us with unmerited favor. And he sent his son to die for us. And Tim said this last week, but while you are unworthy, you are not worthless. And the gospel tells a different story. The gospel says that God has approved of you on the grounds of Christ. God comforts you on the grounds of Christ. God secures you on the grounds of Christ. And on and on and on. Notice that those are the similar stories that our idols tell us. And now because of grace, we're free to try to live for him. 
I want you to think about it this way. When I was in second grade, uh, I had a lot of time tests that I had to do. And I'm awful at math. You know, part of the reason I went to seminary was because they promised me there would be no math. And I flunked time tests left and right. And one day after school, my teacher got the idea. She's like, okay, I'm going to give you a practice time test. It's going to be the same test that you would usually take, but there's no, you know, no pressure. We're not grading it. I just want to see you take this test. And with the pressure being off, what do you think happened? I aced the test. You see, I didn't have to worry about getting one wrong. So it allowed me to be free while I took this test. And the test in my mind wasn't going to count, but my teacher graciously gave me an A because I took the test and I passed it. You see, that's a lot like the impact of grace. See, if we're truly saved by grace, then the consequences of falling short, they're gone. But that doesn't mean that we're now just lazy and we get to do what we want. But actually, that means we get to live more freely. We get to look at our bad fruit. And friends, we get to name what that is more freely. We get to be honest about the idols of our hearts. We get to name them because we're confident that that doesn't mean anything for our eternal salvation. And we're willing to be more vulnerable with others. See, grace means that we're going to start acting different, not just simply thinking different. See, grace is the true catalyst for change because when perfection is no longer required, it's funny how much more freeing and easy it is to live like Jesus. And finally, really quick, humility. Change happens when we take a different perspective. And what is humility but making yourself less? So the final verse of our passage says to submit to God. Submission is hard. That's a hard thing. It's easy to say, but it's hard to do. But submitting means letting go, acknowledging you don't know best, admitting you don't have the power, and admitting you don't have all the answers. See, oftentimes we think we can live this Christian life on our own terms, saying, you know what, I'm going to follow Jesus, but I don't really need to be a part of a church. You know, I don't really need to spend time in prayer. You know, I really don't need to, you know, be serving anywhere. See, we think we can live the Christian life on our own terms, but in reality, that doesn't bring growth. See, growth only happens when we are aligned with God's heart and we do it in God's way. And that requires humility. So the spirit, grace, and humility. As I close up, uh, one of the most memorable quips that I heard growing up was this uh, line. It says, insanity is, the, is doing the same thing twice and expecting a different result. Sanity is doing the same thing multiple times and expecting a different result each time. As we reflect on James and his call to us, I think that's true, isn't it? See, the more we hear God's word and we seek to solve the outward issue, the fruit in our own strength, right, the more frustrated and exasperated we're going to become. And so the solution is that our outward actions, the fruit, must be changed by inward renewal, the root which is transformed by God's grace. See, the gap between who we are and who God has us to be, it begins with the transformation by grace that we receive, and it slowly transforms us from the inside out. Let me pray for us. God, you're good to us. Lord, even when we're faithless, 
you're faithful. And so, Lord, we confess this morning that we are not perfect people, that we struggle, that we fall short, that we go after idols that we think can give us what we want. But, Lord, we know, we sit in this room, Lord, we hear your truth again, that you are all we need, that you form the foundation for our lives. And so, Lord, would you transform our hearts by your grace? And would you give us the humility to follow after you? Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.